Listen to the Think Like a Man podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Play, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Special episodes available to our patrons at patreon.com. So you don't miss a thing from Think Like a Man, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and be sure to like us on Facebook. Undisclosed location deep in the Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee. Two hillbillies armed with nothing more than microphones, loud mouths, and quick wit have found their way onto the internet. Oh, my stars. Tune in weekly to discuss things like sports. We're here playing game six of the World Series, so we're going to fight. We're going to finish this thing. Politics. We did it once. And now we will do it again, and this time we're going to finish the job. Current events. Come after me. I'm a man. I'm 40. Faith or any other topic that they have found interesting. It's drastically changed my life. Welcome to Think Like a Man with Daniel Overton and Jeremy Sellers. Welcome back to the Think Like a Man podcast, and we are so grateful that you've decided to take another hour out of your day and spend it with us. We've got a great guest uh, that's uh, by phone with us today that I think you're really going to enjoy. Hopefully everybody's uh, New Year and Christmas and all that stuff is behind you. You had a great one. You got to spend time with family and, and do all the fun things that time of year, and now we've turned the corner into the new year, and things for us have taken off. Uh, no doubt about that. As far as the Think Like a Man podcast, uh, there's some things where we'll share with everybody coming up, some uh, great um, guests, and, and just 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 to be honest with you, in the last five days, uh, the trajectory of this thing has changed tremendously. So we're looking forward to uh, 2020 for sure. What about you, Daniel? Looking forward to it. Looking uh, if you missed it or not, but Saturday, I paint my Titans. Oh yeah, Beat yeah. The Patriots. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> one thing the Falcons couldn't do. And uh, so, uh, how long are you going to beat that freaking horse? Well, we beat them, so now <laughs> probably for a while. Uh, I forgot. I forgot. I watched that game. That was. Uh, I was. I don't pull for the Titans much because I'm not a Titan fan. But I was Saturday because I cannot stand the Patriots. We and I'm blew tired. up. We blew up the Death Star. Yeah. Yeah, you did. And, I, and and here was here was my thought for for somebody I, like I, I can't stand Tom Brady. I, mean, I just all the credit in the world to what he's done. Great quarterback, yeah. But if that was his last game, it couldn't have ended any better for me than than the way it did with a pick six. We know the story behind that too. That this former teammate. Oh really? Logan, no, I Logan Ryan was with the Super Bowl teams there no. for a while, so for no. him to get that pick six was pretty cool. <laughs> That's great. So, well, since we're talking about football, and we need to go ahead and handle something right off the bat uh, because. Currently and for the rest of this year until football season comes back, I am going. I am the heavyweight champion of the world between you and me. Well, you know why, don't you? It doesn't matter why. Yeah. And I even lost. And I even I even never picked against Florida all year well, long because I hate them and I still won. Well, that was the week we didn't pick Florida, and then there was uh, we missed some picks. We didn't pick the playoffs. It doesn't listen. At some point, you got to, you. You can't make it up. So I think we ended up being uh, – I wrote it down here somewhere. Uh, I ended, I finished 47-23. and 23, You finished 43-27. and 27. And the way the national champ, we both picked the same people. Yeah, so, so that's not going to change. So um, 
I had a song prepared to play for you, but now I'm scared to death we're going to get hit with a copyright infringement, <laughs> so we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, we got to be careful with that. So um, anyway, we're going to jump right in today. We have got a great guest with us today. Um, this man at one time was a ranked heavyweight boxer. He had a chance and, and fought George Foreman and Ken Norton. He's graced the movie screen in both Superman and Superman 2. Those are just two of the movies that, that he's been in. He's a film producer. Uh, he has, I, we could sit here all day and, and list this man's accolades. He's a book, I'm sorry, he's an author of a book called Family Legacy, which we'll talk about that today with him too. We would like to welcome Mr. Jack O'Halloran to the Think Like a Man podcast. How are you, Jack? I'm very well, thanks. How are you guys? We're doing great. And I uh, would like to just say thank you for taking your time. And uh, it's very gracious of you to agree to be with us. And uh, we just want to say thank you for, for doing that. You there, Jack? I'm here. Okay, can you sorry. hear me? Yeah, I can now. It faded out there just a second, so I hear I'm you now. My pleasure. my pleasure for sure. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So I, I've been thinking since we talked last week, and um, I've settled down a little bit. You know, the the person that put you and I in touch together, um, he kind of he kind of uh, shocked me <laughs> there for when, when he put you on the phone. So I, I was trying not to go off fangirl on you. You know what that means, you know. And, and, uh, but I was, uh, to say that my head was swimming would be an understatement. So since then I've given some thought to, you know, you and I, you and me and Daniel talking, and I just, uh, I think the best place to start would be just your early, your early childhood. And, and let's talk about the boxing first. So you were, uh, born in Philadelphia. Am I correct? Do I have that right? Born, born in Philadelphia, correct? Okay. All right. And you born in Go ahead. I was born in Philly and uh, raised up until my junior year of high school, and they built the Waltman Bridge, and everybody fled over to South Jersey. And I graduated from high school in South Jersey and uh, running me in New Jersey. Okay. And uh, I, uh, then I, I went to, down to school for a year down in Western Kentucky and uh, played a little, little bit of football. And oh, see, and, I didn't know uh, that. So you went, to, you you were you were down here with us, with these people that talk fun. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I, I had I had uh, offers to go to North Carolina and a lot of other schools. And uh, oh, okay, uh, wound up at, at uh, Western because um, I just uh, Diddle was was one of the winningest coaches in the history of basketball at the time and they were uh they did said they had a great program and plus it was like an eight to one ratio <laughs> of girls to girls, girls to guys yeah. yeah hey that's always a decision that makes a decision doesn't it bowling green, bowling green is kind of a neat little town and, and it was it was only it wasn't university it was just a college then okay and they played a great brand of football in in the valley you know in the Ohio valley conference and uh so, you know, but I just um, I went down. I was only there for a year. And what I, position uh, did you play? Defensive end. I had a feeling because you're not a you're not a little guy. You're about six five, six six. Six six. Six when six. I was when I was playing ball, I was a 
Well, I, I, when I left out of there, I was grabbed by the Jets, uh, but you couldn't, it was at a time when you couldn't play pro ball until your class graduated college. Oh, really? You, you weren't eligible to play pro ball. That's why a lot of guys went into service and played like Unitas and them guys. And mm-hmm. They didn't graduate college, but they played different play Anyway, so I, um, I played on a, like a semi-pro team uh, on the East Coast with people like Jimmy Christie and Dick Christie and a bunch of other guys that waited to go up into the pros. So we played a pretty good high caliber of, uh, we were like a farm baseball team, football team for the Jets. Right. It wasn't a bunch of scrubs. No. And Joe (laughs) Willie was up there. But when it came eligible time for me to play, there was a lot of friends of mine. It was a great team down in Philadelphia. And uh, so I told you back, I'd like to go down to Philly and try to play down there a year. And he said, well, you always have a, home here, but whatever you want to do. And, and I went down to Philly, Jerry Wallman had just bought the team and, and they hired some clown called Joe Q. Harrick, who I sat and watched him trade a championship football team away. This guy did in two months. He <laughs> really? traded to the study Jurgensen and Tommy McDonald to Washington for Norman Sneed and traded five great young linebackers to green Bay for Jim Ringo, whose career was washed up. Wow. And he traded Pete Bourne and Irv Cross to LA for a kickoff return guy that they never got. So I, you know, <laughs> and, and I came out of the meeting one day and thank you, Herrick, walked right past us and Jimmy, Timmy Brown and I, and I, and I said, yeah, you don't talk to people. And he, oh, and I said, you know what? Take this team and stick it up your ass. <laughs> Timmy said, why don't you want to trade me? So, uh, and, and now he had just won the title. And I said to some friends of mine, I could knock him out. So, oh. That was a great idea. <laughs> I wound up in the gymnasium in South Philadelphia, and six months later, I was fighting professional boxing. You know? You're not the one that uh, Rocky was originally made after, are you? It's my story, Rocky. <laughs> I tell you a fine story. You know, you let I tell you something. I was doing a picture, Farewell, My Lovely, right. the first movie I ever did. Yeah. Yes. And uh, Stallone did a small part in that movie. Okay. And he was writing the script of Rocky at the time, and he picked my brain every day. He had never been to Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, really? I told him I was I was a gangster fighter. I was, I, you know, my 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 original managers were Sam Margolis and the guy Blinky Palermo, and uh, and, and my father was Albert Anastasia. So oh. the mob was my life, you know. Was, right. Uh, so I explained to him the waterfront and all that stuff, and I gave him all that. You know, the gym that I worked out in, past young gyms where Joey Giardello and a lot of great fighters trained out of there. Right. And, uh, and I gave him the history of boxing in Philadelphia and, and how, you know, I, how I worked the waterfront with Hoffa and everybody else. And I was a kid. You know, we controlled the unions there. Wow. And then, and he, uh, <laughs> When he wrote the script, that made me laugh. But when I saw the movie come out, I laughed because, you know, he took it to where he fought for the title. I was signed to fight with Ali four different times. Oh, really? It just never happened. Hmm. Right. I just didn't, for some reason or another, it didn't come out. There was a lot of stories involved in all of it, but that's another time, you know. But, the, so boxing was, uh, and I found I was, I was undefeated for the first 16, 17 fights, and and they discovered I had this disease called acromegaly, which is a tumor of the pituitary gland. They said, you shouldn't be boxing at all. 
And then I just was boxing was like a day job. Then I was doing my gangster stuff at night and I was fighting <laughs> during the day. I would take fights on, on a week's notice just to be, if I could get into another city where I could go to do some work, you know, so, so it made me available to travel. Right? Okay. And it was good. You know, it's a, but if I would have put the, the sad part was that I had a lot of natural talent and right. I was just an athlete. Right. You know, so you, when so I when played you ball, in- I weighed, when I played football, I weighed 280 pounds. I ran a four six forty. Good night, man. So I can move around a little bit. That's, and then when yeah. I was boxing, they took me way down to 230, 235 in, in that area there. And so it's like skin and bones. Right. And, yeah, compared and, to where you were. I could move. I could move and punch like Muhammad Ali. I, I moved. I was a pretty good fighter. Right. I had a lot of natural. And I had a lot of street. Uh, you know, a guy asked me one time, because I could never box. I'm one of 10 heavyweights in the world that, that uh, was ranked as in the world rankings without boxing amateur. I never boxed amateur. Oh, so okay. I couldn't. Okay. You weren't allowed to have, you weren't allowed to be a pro and an amateur in those days. You can today, you get away with it, but right. couldn't then. So, so it was, uh, so, you know, it was, it was, uh, uh, it was good. I had a lot of great fights with a lot of great fighters and uh, beat a lot of great fighters. And I lost some fights to guys that I, Probably shouldn't have lost to, but I wasn't paying attention to what I was supposed to be doing. But right. I don't make excuses. I just did what I did, and that's my life. And, you know, hey. uh, if my father was alive, I probably would have been champ of the world. You know, <laughs> <laughs> things would have been done differently. Right. But, the, um, but then I got into into the movie business. I kept turning movies down, and they finally, when I retired boxing, they offered me farewell, my lovely, with Robert Mitchum, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I, uh, so I blame it all on Mitchum, you know, <laughs> hey, Jay, it this worked is... out extremely well. And, you know, just, uh, and I went from some pretty good movies, you know, I did King Kong, I did Superman movies, Dragnet, uh, Baltimore Bullets, Deer in the Terror. I've done some pretty good films. Right. Hey, and, Jay, this... uh, and I've had a lot of fun doing it, you know. This is Daniel. I had one quick question about your boxing. What was it like to be in the ring with George Foreman? I was looking over your list of fighters. It was pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Career. You know, George and I, George, he would never fight me again. Really? You really? Know, they, stopped, they stopped the fight very quickly. I, I think it was in the fifth round, and I and I had won like two or three of the first mm-hmm. couple rounds we fought. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, I, and I walked into a punch at my own fault. You know, right. I, just, I, I was uh, I, I was arrogant when I was younger. I, I, I only trained about two weeks for the fight. Really? You know? That's crazy to me uh, because you hear them today. Yeah. I was doing other If I ever did that, if I did that a couple times where I trained for a month. And when I did that, I beat the ranked number two heavyweight in the world. I knocked out Manuel Ramos in LA. And mm. then I, then I knocked out, I uh, beat Alvin Lulu, who no one wanted to fight. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, so I, and, when I fought Norton, they, I was I was I was in New Jersey, and we had uh, I had about sixteen indictments against me for union problems. <laughs> and the guy called me on the phone. And he said, "You want to fight Ken Norton?" I said, "When?" He said, "Next week." I said, "Send me a ticket." <laughs> he said, "You'll take the fight." I said, "Send me a ticket." <laughs> so I went out and I and I and I whipped the shit out of Norton, but it was his own town. <laughs> And they got, he got a decision, but I won the town, so I stayed in San Diego because 
was a safer place for me at the time to be. And, right. And I wound up winning the California heavyweight champion. I knocked out a half dozen guys and I beat a guy and nobody wanted to fight Henry Clark. I took the state title off of him. But it was at the end of my career and I was macromegaly was getting really bad and the doctor out there was a dear friend of mine, a commission doctor, and he said, Either you go to Scripps and get a workup or I'm taking your license away from it because a disease will kill you. So oh, okay. I went the course I was where your body's supposed to put out ten percent growth hormone, I was putting out hundred and fifty. Wow. So they so I got finally retired from boxing and got a cure to the mass general and um when I retired, then I went into the movie business. And I, so then I, a year, a couple of years after that, I was in the gym working out because I always trained all the time. And I picked up a kid named Frankie Lyles that they threw out of the gym in Detroit, and I made him world champion, <laughs> super middleweight champion of the world. Did you? Freddie Roach, and I created, and I created a monster in boxing, Freddie Roach. Freddie Roach was the first world champion he ever worked with. He worked the corner with me. Really? Now here, here I've got a question for you, Jack. This is something I've never had a chance to ask a somebody who boxed professionally, uh, and, it, and I think about it every time I see somebody take a take a shot. So I know, and this is going to sound really crazy, but if if I just uh-huh. barely hit the end of my nose, I get my te- eyes will tear up. I mean that hurts like crap. And I've wondered how in the world do you all take a shot square in the nose and keep on going? It's like it doesn't phase you. I, I got to tell you, you got it, it's conditioning. Is it seriously? You, you, you get you get your 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 facial muscles and everything get conditioned. Really, and, and it's up to you as to how, and it's up how 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 well you can move around and how well you move your head as to how solid you could hit. <laughs> yeah, that was a glancing blow or he really landed it. Hmm. You know, I know I've done that. I've had hit guys, you know, with, I had a great left jab, so I used to break up a lot of people's face. I saw a video but, uh, of you earlier today. I watched some of the, it was just old, it was the old video of you and Ken Norton. Yeah, it just well, that, now that I where'd you get that video at? Well, I, I you know how the internet is. I, it just, it was on YouTube. Uh, I was looking. That's at, a great point. Yeah, I've it, been looking for that for a while. You it, found the Ken Norton fight? Well, it's about three minutes of it. About three and a half minutes. It's not oh, the whole thing. Okay. Um, that was a great. Yeah, Ken yeah. Norton and I. Norton and I fought in San Diego, and I, I like I said, I trained I think a week for the fight, and the uh, ninth round. The, the I mean, we really had a brawl. In the ninth round, they people were standing on the chairs screaming so loud that when they rang the bell, nobody could hear the guy ring the bell. And they rang it three times <laughs> and they finally separated me and I in the middle of the ring. And I was going back to my corner. He ran across the ring and hit me behind the head. Really? And drove me into the ring post. I could have sat on a stool and won the fight. The commissioner jumped in the corner and he said, you can't continue. You just won the fight on a foul. And I was so angry. I said, continue. I'm going to kill this guy. <laughs> what are you kidding? <laughs> And I was a dumbass. I got out of the middle of the 10th round. I said, what am I doing here? I could have sat down and won this thing. I know if I don't knock him out, it's, he's going to get a hometown decision. Yeah. And I knew it. And they, yeah. And that's what happened. It, so, it? yeah, it was a split decision. And, you know, but I won the, the city. They fall in love with me because it was a great fight. I busted him up. It was yeah. the worst beating he took, he ever took. I cut him up pretty bad. And 
Uh, anyway, it was a great fight. Kenny was a good kid. He was a tough kid. Yeah. And but he would never fight me again. I, I so I stayed there, and I knocked out a few people, and I won the California State title. And before I retired, and, so are uh, you in the California Hall of Fame and the Pennsylvania Hall of Fame? And the New Jersey Hall of Fame. And the New Jersey. And Hall. the New England. Okay. Yeah. You're you're just all over the place, aren't you? A little bit here, a little bit there, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I see you. You retired with 17 knockouts. You know, I, I've never knocked anybody out in my life that I know of. I had. Uh, we actually did. Actually, we we and it's not even on my record. We we fought. I fought about 20 smoker fights. Now, what's a smoker? When I was fight? living in New England. Well, they they used to have they used to have shows all over the place. A guy named Subway Sam Silverman and. Uh, uh, his partner and they ran boxing shows all over the place and and we used to travel all through new england maine and place banger maine and stuff like that and and we'd go up to the fights because it was a crew we ran around and, and the guy said listen jack can you can you fill in tonight we need a we need a fight and i said well what do you, what do you? i said but you know my manager ain't gonna be too high no 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 he said we won't tell nobody so you fought under another name you got your shoes and stuff i, I had them in my car all the time i said sure by about 20 knockouts that were never registered on my record. <laughs> really? <God. laughs> you know, crazy. You know, you do crazy things when you're younger. You just oh, don't, yeah. you know. You just, yeah. My father-in-law has said. I asked him one time, he, said, he said, where did you get your amateur experience? I said, in the street. I had more street fights than you got hazard. You know, my father-in-law, he, he, and you can probably relate to this. He, he, he's got this saying that if he knew he was going to live this old, he'd have took better care of himself. Listen, I got, I'm 76 years old. I could, I could attest to that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't have, now those fights don't sound like such a good idea, do they? You're, you're feeling well, it today. I, 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 I have more, more broken bones and injuries from playing football and, and boxing and, you know, just street fights and, you know, craziness, you know, it's just, uh, so carrying, carrying muscles and I've had so many parts of my body operate, but I feel like an erector set. Right. <laughs> so, so you're in San Diego and that, that's how you end up in California and, and then moving on into the movie industry. Did I understand you correct? That's correct. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was in, I came out here in, in 1968 to fight a guy called Manuel Ramos, who was a champion of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had fought 11 days before that in South Africa. Oh, so gosh. I went down to South Africa. I got in very good shape. And I came out 11 days later, I fight Manuel Ramos in LA and George Parnassus, who was a big time promoter out there. And I got off the plane and he said, my God, you're in shape. I said, aren't you supposed to be in shape when you come to a fight? <laughs> I said, no, I'm going to knock this bum out. You can't do that. They were getting ready for him to fight Ali. Oh, really? And they thought that if he, if he could beat me, it was a great stepping stone for him. So I, said, I, so I knocked him out. <laughs> and the, and the, the, uh, people from back east had put together a deal with Eddie Foy the third at Fox. For, they were doing the picture to Great White Hope with James Earl Jones. Yeah. Yeah, and they wanted me to play Jess Willard, and the, the deal was done. They all I had to do was go in and sign the contract, really? and they, they got well. You know, we would send you to Spain for six months, blah blah blah. But I said, yeah, really. I said, and they well, we're going to pay you fifteen hundred a week, and I said fifteen hundred a week. I said, I thought about. It. I said, 
I give that away in tips, man. You ain't paying me nothing. <laughs> and I may have a title fight with Ali, and you want me to go to Spain for six months? I don't think so. The guys, the guys sitting there saying, but I thought this deal was already done. All you're going to do is sign a contract. I said, ah, you know what? There's a guy in, in, in St. Paul, Minneapolis. Uh, what was the kid's name? I said, he just retired from boxing and he needs a job. Right. <laughs> He's a big white kid. And they, uh, so they, they, the guy said, to me, you're serious. I said, serious hard. I appreciate the offer, but thank and eighty four, I left the office. Eighty four, he said, "My God, you're going to get me killed! You were supposed to do this, Raven Practice. I can put this together." I said, "I'll take care. Don't worry about it." <laughs> so they had offered me that movie. That was the biggest movie in Hollywood at the time. And I was leaving Fox, and I was walking down the front steps, and James Earl Jones is coming up the steps, and he stopped me, and he said, "You're Jack O'Hara." And I said, "Yeah, you're James Earl Jones." He said, <laughs> he said "I got to ask you a question." He said, "Is it true what I just heard?" This is how fast stuff in Hollywood goes around. I said, well, it depends on what you heard. He said, you just told Hollywood to take the biggest movie out here and stick it? I said, well, I guess if you, if you want to say that. He said, i got to shake your hand. I never met anybody that did that. So we became pretty good friends. And Steve McQueen and I were good friends because he wanted me to do the Crown, Thomas Crown Affair. Oh, okay. I had turned down a couple of really pretty good movies. And I, then when I retired and they offered me Farewell, My Lovely, I uh, looked around where I was at, and I said, you know what? I think it's time. So that's all Mitchell's fault. So the <laughs> did farewell, the, it worked out very well. You ever see Farewell? Farewell is a good picture. No, I have not. I, I will so I will look, watch it, though. The uh, You talk you know, about turning really, stuff down. Uh, I saw that you, were, you, were, you turned down the role for Jaws in Spy Who Loved Me, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, now I wanted to know what was your reasoning behind that. Well, they, you know, Cubby came to the, my agent in L.A. and I, I had just I had signed to do a picture called March or Die with uh, right. Gene Hackman and Catherine Deneuve and uh, Terrence Hill and uh, some great actors. And uh, they wanted me, and I read the script, and I didn't want to get into that Goonie type actor. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Um, I, and I, I, I just didn't, uh, I liked the crew that I liked the picture March or die and I probably should have done the bond movie, but, uh, out of doing March or die, I did Superman, which was a better turned out to be a better situation anyway. Oh, you know? sure. Sure. Uh, so, you know, when I was in Spain doing the picture and they, they called down there for Hackman and I to come to London. You've acted Gene, a lot with talk, with Gene Hackman, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah. So we went up to we went up to talk to Donner in London about Superman, and and um, and they said to me, uh, you know, do you do you mind playing a character that's a mute? And I said, no, I embrace it. He said, what? I said, Jackie Gleason was a friend of mine, and he did a picture called Gigo where he won an Oscar for it. Mm playing a deaf dub dude. And I said, if I ever got a chance to play a character that I could use body language and facial expressions, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to take it on. And, mm-hmm. and Naren was a great character because Terrence Stamp is a great actor and he was a vicious general. Mm-hmm. And Sarah Douglas was a man eater. Mm-hmm. So somebody had to relate to kids because big audience in the, right. in the Superman movies. So I said, I'll play this brutish, brutish guy like a child learning how to work my eyes and learning how to do things and stuff. And, and it worked out very well. 
you yeah, know, it dude. came off pretty good, boy. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard that. Uh, I read somewhere that that you said one time that when you meet people, that they um, people are surprised that you can actually talk <laughs> after that. When they, you do these Comic Con shows, you know. Yeah. And uh, and the first one, the first couple times I ever did it, and I was sitting there, and people come up to me and they said, "My God, you really can talk." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm not really a mute I man. Yeah, I had to laugh. I said, "Yeah, I think so." You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was not, yeah. So, so I, I said, well, "That's pretty good." I must have been pretty convinced in the movie then. Right. I yeah. Said, no joke. No joke. People constantly they said, "My God, your character scared to death." And I loved your character so much. Did <laughs> a child mannerism, you know? Right. So, so I heard that evidently. That you and uh, yeah. Christopher Reeves d- d- didn't. Uh, we got a saying in the South here called "G and Haw," which means uh, you you may uh, not want that. I, I, I heard you. People all... made such people made such a big deal of out of something. You work with somebody for three years, yeah, yeah. and you working with somebody for three years, and we had one argument, and and it was not. It was it was a dumb dumb on his side. I mean, you right. know, my father was a very famous guy in New York, right. One of them, my father was one of the most feared mafiosos in the country. And there was an Italian restaurant in London that I still go to. And I, they, the guy was uh, was the first real Italian restaurant in London. And uh, and they, uh, I brought everybody from 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 the studio in there to eat dinner because you help your friends. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had a great restaurant, so we I, I would invite everybody to come in and eat dinner and all the stuff and and uh, trying to and it was good. Paparazzi was there and stuff right. like that. Became a really big paparazzi restaurant. And Christopher was in there one night, and and and, and the guy that owned the restaurant is a dear friend. You know, he's, mm-hmm. a, he's a, an Italian. So he called me on the phone and he said, "How well do you know this kid, Christopher Reeve?" And I said. I work with him. I said, I don't know him that well. He said, he said, well, he said, he's in here talking about your father in New York and your life. And I don't know whether you really want people doing that. And I said, I definitely don't. Thank you very much. <laughs> said, so I better call you and tell you that this kid's doing that. And I said, so the next day I go on the set and I grabbed him and I took him in a room. We had a conversation and I said, you know, how well do you know me? I said, listen, Next time you mention my name, say Mr. in front of it. Don't ever talk about my father again, or you got a problem with me, a bad one that you ain't going to like. <laughs> so I thought I sorted it out, and we walk out into the hallway where all the people are now, and all of a sudden he thinks he's Superman. <laughs> you can't talk to me that way, blah, 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 blah. blah. I said, what? So I grabbed him, I put him against the wall, and I just get ready to smack him, and Richard Donner jumped up in my ear, and he said, not in the face, Jack. Please, not in the face. <laughs> yeah. Don't hit the poster boy in the I face. Just, I just dropped him on the floor. I laughed like hell. And I said, oh, my God. You don't know how lucky you are, kid. <laughs> and I walked away. We, you know, we, 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 we became friends after that. I mean, Chris was all right. He just was, he was a young guy. It was the first big picture he ever did. Sure. You know, and it was, and he took it to heart. Right. You know, he was. Don't Superman walking around all the time. It was a, not a good idea with somebody like me. You know, it was a no. Anyway, no. no. But that's the only argument I ever knew with the guy. And people had blown it so out of proportion. Oh, you told me. I said, you know, please. Yeah. 
You know, if you don't know what you're talking about, don't talk about it. But you know, you know, you just, know how people are. That that's what they're good at is oh my God. taking a little you're bit of something and 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 blowing it up into something huge. Ten guys up and whispering something to one guy's ear. By the time we get to the tenth guy, it's a total different story. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not even close to what was originally said. No. Uh, yeah. So oh, you were in you were in King Kong too, right? Yeah, it's the second movie I ever did with I, Jesse Lang, yeah. Yeah, I remember I watched that movie as a kid, and Jack, that thing scared the crap out of me. I mean, I, I don't know what it was about that big monkey and that. Uh, it just, it. I hadn't watched it since. It scared it me so great, bad. We had a great cast. <laughs> we had a great cast. And it was a, it was the only problem they had was the director, and they, they had a better director. That It's a classic anyway. It's a, right. You know, the it was Jessica Lang. That was her first picture, and she was just a natural. Yeah, you knew she was going to be a star. And Jeff Bridges is a good actor. Charlie Gruden. We mm-hmm. had a good crew. It was, it was. We had a lot of fun doing it. And it was the longest. I think it was the second longest picture I worked on. It was the longest at that time. Then Superman, of course, was the longest thing I ever did. But how long is long? We worked nine months on King Kong. Nine months or five? Nine. Nine. Yeah. Golly. That, that is a yeah, long it was time. a long time. Wow. Now, one of my favorite movies growing up was Dragnet. What was it like? Work, uh, oh, no, that? We had yeah, I was we thinking had Dan so much- and Tom Hanks. And I mean, that just seems like that would be a pretty Dude, crazy. Okay, you could watch Dragnet 50 times and you still wouldn't get all the one liners <laughs> that Danny did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had a lot of fun doing that picture. It was, it was a fun movie. So, so, so we've talked a little bit about, um, you, you turned down some roles and and you accepted some other ones. And my question to you, now that you look back on your career, is there a decision that you made, whether it be, and and I guess I'm really kind of more referring to the not taking of a role or, or taking of a role that you feel like you just, you you regret. First bad, de- first bad decision I ever made was, you know, I did Farewell My Lovely, which I hope one day you get a chance to see because it really turned out very well. And I could have won Supporting Actor that year. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Carson, Mitch and the talk to Carson, Johnny Carson was going to want me to do his show. And, uh, and I met him at the Polo Lounge, and he he said, you do my show and I'll get you nominated because the, the picture is really good. You did a great job in it. And I think you should get nominated for supporting actor. Mm. And and I said to him, and this was the first really bad mistake I ever made. I, and I looked at him and I said, thought about it. And I said, your show is live, isn't it? He said, yeah. I said, eh, I don't think I can do it. He said, why? I said, because I'm going to come out on the stage. You're going to ask me about my father. Cause I know Mitchum told you a lot about me mm-hmm. and you're going to ask me about my father and I'm going to ask you where the men's room's at. He said, you would get up and leave. And I said, yeah. I said, I would just, uh, I said, because nobody talks about my father. I don't talk about it. And, and it's the national television. I don't think so. Right. And he said, well, okay, well, no, we'll give you a list of questions that we'll, we'll, we'll ask. And I said, John, no disrespect. You're the biggest, investigative reporter guy on television today and you got Albert Anastasia's son on your set and you're not going to ask me about my father? Do I look like I fell off a turnip truck? And I, and I, you know, I said, I appreciate the offer. Thank you very much. And boom, I left. 
Mitchum called me on the phone. He said, are you out of your mind? I said, what are you talking about? He said, Jack, this is Hollywood. They don't care. They yeah. love that kind of stuff. You have sat there and done what's wrong with you. <laughs> and that, that was a bad mistake. You know, they right. could have probably nominated for supporting. I had a good chance of winning. So uh. that was the first mistake I made. And uh, turning down the Bond movies was, I, I probably should have done it, you know. And then mm. I turned down a picture. I was doing King Kong, and we had uh, several weeks off while they filmed in New York. We weren't in that. So they offered me a picture with Gene Wilder and uh, Silver Street, with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Okay. And I should have done that. I should have done the movie. I, you know, I, I said, ah, I'll about sit at the beach for six weeks. You know, right. <laughs> I should, I should have went up to Seattle and done the movie because working with Fire was been fun. And, and, oh yeah, Gene Gene Wilder was a gas. He was a good guy. What movie but was that? Again, it was called Silver Streak. Oh, Silver Streak. Okay, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't hear you say uh, that. And it was another. It was another goony guy walking. You know, but so I, I went. I said, you know. I don't know, man. So I, I should have, but I should have done it. It was uh, mm-hmm. because Paramount came to me and they said, boy, we really, if you do this, we'll give you this movie and this movie. And, and you know, turning movies down isn't one of the favorable things they like you to do in Hollywood. Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah, you you better take it if they lay it in front of you, shouldn't you? Um, uh, hold on a second, guys. Okay. I, I talked to him earlier. He said he's coming over to set I called him that. Yeah. All right. Excuse me. Sorry about that, guys. That, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, the general of the house, man. <laughs> <laughs> the general speech, you got to talk to her. Yeah. You know, she you. I've got one of those two upstairs. So <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. But um, the, uh, so you've, you've, uh, you've, no, met- I, I turned, I turned it down, which was kind of dumb, you know. So right. I've done that a couple of and Paramount really wanted me, and then I I have a great script that I'm getting ready to do a picture called The Informer, and I wrote it 40 years ago. And yeah. Paramount probably would have done it when when I did, when I wrote it. It's a and and it's an Oscar shot for me. It's a great movie. Victor McLaughlin won the leading Oscar for it when he did the picture in the 30s. And it's an Irish picture, you know, about the, the Irish Revolution. And it's a uh, and it's a good film, and we have a great cast, and we're going to go to Ireland and finally do it. When are you it's, When uh, are you going to do that? Probably go over there in February to set it up, and we'll shoot it hopefully before the year's end. And what was the What's the name of that one? Ballad of a Simple Man. The original picture was called The Informer. John okay. Ford won four Oscars. John Ford won an Oscar for it, and Victor won an Oscar, and the cinematographer, and I think the screenplay writer. Okay. So we we um, we're getting ready to Ireland to do that, and then I'm going to make a movie of the of my book, Fair, uh, Family Legacy. Are you? And we're going to do a television series, and I've got three more books I'm writing. So, well, I've let's. Been, uh, uh, you've uh, you mentioned that a couple of times. I wanted to spend a little time talking about your book, and uh, and so w- let's let's talk about let's just talk about the book. I'll let you fill in the blanks or who your I'm, dad was. Family Legacy is uh, a story that, you know, people do all these mob movies, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, and no one ever tells the truth. Right. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and my father was, my father ran a little company in New York called Murder, Inc. Just a little and, company. Uh, and the Gambino family was the Anastasia family. And then it, when my father was assassinated, 
became the Gambino family because Carlo Gambino was his underboss. Okay. And so, so your dad was running was the talking, show. Your dad was running no, the he show. Was the most feared, uh, he was the most feared guy that ever came in the country. Gotcha. And he was partnered with Charlie Luciano and Meyer Lansky and uh, Frank Costello. And, uh, they were the original group, you know? Mm-hmm. But everybody does all these movies and they do mob movies and this and that. And, you know, and Hollywood made Capone bigger than he ever was. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, and I think I'm one of uh, maybe four people alive today that was ever went across the country and met every one of the old Dons, you know? Oh, really? And, and I, I knew the history of where I come from very well. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and so I, I said, you know, I wrote a book. And the book is from my father's death to Kennedy's death. Mm. And I tell the truth about a lot of things, including the Kennedy assassination. Mm. And and in in my father's world, you know, what I, the difference is, is that in the beginning, industry, government, unions, and organized crime were partners. Mm. They were all partners. And a lot of the illicit monies that were made by organized crime, and you got to understand it wasn't, they weren't in the drug business in those days. It was all gambling and extortion and and loan sharking. Right. But the the illicit monies they made, they put back into the country. They created a lot of jobs. They Mm -hmm. created, they controlled unions. My father controlled the waterfronts, all of them. So all the shipping. And and they created a lot of jobs. Yeah, so what they they created jobs so that you made sure you had a job to pay them back if you owed the money. You know, <laughs> they put a lot of people to work. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, it helps society. And if you go back in history, I mean, I don't know. You guys are from Tennessee. How old are you? I'm about to be forty nine. Thirty eight. You're babies. You're yeah, babies. Just, yeah. I'm okay. still got wet behind well, the ears. When I was raised up in Philadelphia, you know. Uh, we never locked our front door. Right. Kid, I, I, you know, kids played in the street from, from sun up to sundown. You could put a pram outside of your house with a baby. Nobody ever bothered it. Really? Neighborhoods were much safer when 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 when, when organized crime was around. So they, that was due to the, that was due to the to the mob. They were they were making sure everybody stayed. Okay. You took care of their neighborhoods. You didn't have drive by shootings. Right. I, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I'll tell you a funny story. I was down in, uh, in Nashville a couple of years back. Oh, God, about 10, 12 years ago. Okay. And there's a little town right outside of Nashville. And this guy called me. He said, I would like you to come down. I'd like to talk to you. And I said, sure. So he was in Murder, Inc. with my father. Really? And he told me a story that made me laugh my ass off because... Murder, Inc. was so cleverly put together. They had guys all over the country. They never talked on the telephone. They wrote letters to everybody. Mm. And they took care of business in different sections of the, of the country. Wow. And they never got caught. And this guy, he lived in this little town. And he went to church every Sunday. And he, he, he helped his neighbors repair their houses. And he was a good old boy. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved him. And he would get a he would get a, a letter, or someone would come down and see him and say, "You got to go to Chicago to take care of this." He was a killer, he was a hit guy, and but no one ever knew he was a family man. You know what I mean? Right. And he would go to Chicago, and he'd be gone for a couple of days, and 
you come back and boom. So the FBI went down there to this town one day and they and they, they, they swore that he was the guy that did something in Chicago and they were going to catch him. And they went, they went to the local people and they said, well, so-and-so was he in town this certain day? And they said, well, I sure was. He's here every day. <laughs> and, and, and they said, well, and they went to the church and they said, well, that boy was in church that day. What are you talking about? We see him all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like 150 people vouch for him being somewhere that he wasn't. They were just so used to seeing him. Right, you know what right. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's always and there. He, they... he was a good old boy. You know, everybody yeah. loved him. You know, he was with his neighbors all the time and stuff like that. And, and I had laugh like hell. He said, Jack, you know, because that's the way the South was. Oh, yeah. If you were born and drug up there and, you you know, you were part of this society, they never, they never, if you were gone for a couple of days, no one ever thought about it. You know what right. I mean? They always thought they saw you all the time. So and they, they were his greatest alibi, alibi. I laughed. I said, you can't, you should. He said, well, then they had one rat that put like 11 guys on death row. Oh, and uh, it was a break for the rink. And, you know, it was uh, one guy that they should have killed, and they gave him a beating, and he ran, to, and the feds grabbed him, and he was the first guy to ever go witness protection program. Oh, really? Abe Rellis. Abe Rellis. Look him up. Abe Rellis. He, he went out the, the night he was supposed to go, the night before he was supposed to testify against my father, he went out the window of this, of this motel that they had in Washington, in Stony Island, Staten Island. He went out the window, and, and, it, and it was here. Here's the best part. Here's the guy is being watched 24-7 by cops. They lived with him in this motel, right? Right. And he went out the window, and they said, well, he put sheets together, and he was trying to escape. When he landed on the roof, when he landed on the roof below, he was 20 feet away from the building. Which meant somebody chucked him out the window. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, nobody ever got him locked up for it, for sure. You know? I just, I, you know, being from where we're from, the obviously, well, well, I'm not going to say obviously because you just told us about one who lived outside of Nashville. But, you know, me, the, the whole organized crime, the mob, that it's just so foreign to me. Uh, you know that it, it it's just intriguing to hear the stories and and how they ran things and so what was your dad was actually killed in a barber shop wasn't he yeah they killed him because he wouldn't my father you ever see the godfather yes okay marlon brando when they they went to marlon brando about getting in the drug business mm-hmm. and he said if we touch it, our children will touch it. It'll be the downfall of the families, and I have to, I have to pass. Right. That's what my father said. Mm. My father controlled all the docs, and he said, "You're not bringing that shit in my, not not through my docs, not on my watch." I didn't sign up for that. Right. And that was Genovese. Genovese, when Genovese got deported in the '30s, he went to Italy and down in Sicily, and he set up a, a heroin plant down there where they manu- where they processed, and they distributed it from there. And the Italians that were involved in it, that brought the heroin into America, weren't even called Italians. They were called Zips. Oh, really? They didn't want to be associated. Well, because none of the families were associated in the drug business at that time. Right. They weren't. They, they didn't sanction it. But it got to a point where they said, "Well, there's so much money involved that we'll, we won't touch it, but we'll allow other people to sell it in our neighborhoods." 
and we get a share of the profit. Right. The hypocrisy was terrible. It's yeah, all about no dollars. And Albert said, if we touch it, our children will find it. And it was true because anybody who touches it uses it. Right. I don't care what they say. Wow, yeah. I do that. You know, that's bullshit. They touch it, they're using it. So, you know, and it was, and it was a downfall of the family. It was, uh, you know. And it still it is exposed. today. Oh, my God. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah. yeah. So and the government's more involved than anybody ever wants to talk about. Oh, so I agree. It's, I agree. You, know, you just got to, it's all hogwash. You know what I'm saying? If you can get a bunch of people dependent on you for everything, you control them. And that's, oh, a, it's, it's just, that's it's exactly sad. what they're doing. It's true. Yeah. So really, who really actually, sad. who actually was man enough or big enough or whatever you want to say it to, to call for the hit on your dad? Well, it was Vito Genovese was the one because Charlie Luciano was in jail. And so Vito Genovese uh, convinced Gambino and he convinced Meyer Lansky that there was so much money involved that Albert was just had to be, it had to take him out. They tried to kill Frank Costello and then they, they, they killed my father and uh, they tried to kill Charlie Luciano. And, uh, you know, and, and they came to me two years later. I was 14 when he got killed. But when I was 16 years old, they sat me down and they said it was the worst mistake we've ever made because Albert was the glue. He held everything together. Oh, really? You know, people were scared to death of him. Oh, my God. He was the guy. I mean, I, I could go to New York today and mention his name on the corner. People look over their shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> so is that dude back? <laughs> Yeah. He, he put that kind of fear in people, you know. When he was, and, and he actually was a good guy. I mean, he was a very bright guy. He was a uh, was he know, a big he was, guy? He was. A, was he, he was about six foot. Okay. But he was very thick. Was he? He was thick built. Mm. Very. He was a tough man. He was. You, Albert didn't play. You just you didn't. Right. You never wanted him on your bad side. Let me tell you. That. Oh, I, I can imagine. <laughs> So there's a, there's a, and I'm wondering if you know who this guy is or there was a, we've been doing another series on obscure serial killers and there was, and what we were doing, I've came across some other guys and there's a guy that I believe he's dead now, but, uh, they called him the Iceman and he was an assassin for the mob. Does that name ring a bell at all to you? I've heard the name, you know, but there's. There's there's twenty of them guys. Right, right, right. Okay. Right. And there was one guy. One guy. There was one guy who, who used an ice pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a Pittsburgh Phil. Pittsburgh Phil was a trip. He, you'd be sitting in a movie theater, and he'd sit behind you and stick an ice pick in your neck. The movie'd be over, and that guy wasn't leaving. <laughs> you, you just talked me out of ever going back to a movie, Jack. Back row. He carried a nice pick around all the time, and he, he, he had yeah, he killed a couple people that way. They were sitting in the movie theater, and he just got behind him, boop, pop, oh, gosh. walked out of the theater, and no one, and no, and all of a sudden, this guy's still sitting there. Why are you sitting there? What's this? No, God. So how long? How long was your your dad came over from Italy? Correct? Am I correct on that? Came over in 1918, 1919, There's a debate on it. You know. Okay. The uh, he came over on a boat, and you know, he they, they, he was already involved in in, in Italy. Uh, he was a Calabrese, but his mother was Sicilian, and he worked on the boats. 
uh, in between, you know, Calabria and, and Sicily are right next to each other. Mm-hmm. So we were on the boat working all the time, and, and uh, he came over with his brothers on the boat, and they took him off the boat before. He never went through Ellis Island. He came into the country illegally. And, really? Uh, and then in 19, he was working on the docks in, in 1919, and, he, and a guy, he caught a guy that was uh, a jobber for them, and he was stealing from people. And he got into an argument with the guy and killed the guy mm. on the docks. And they and they locked him up, put him in jail, and he, they, he was on death row. And Charlie Luciana took a liking to him, and somebody else in jail, he, he saved some people's bacon in jail. And... Uh, and they arranged for a new trial, and all the witnesses disappeared, and uh, and they let him go. And he, you know, he, he, he came out, and he nobody had contested. to let him go. <laughs> there, was, there was no testimony; <laughs> nobody was around. Yeah. So he he worked his way up and became one of the most powerful guys. You know, they they put together Murder Inc. and uh, he and uh, uh, he and uh, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, my brain goes dead before. Uh, the Jewish fellow was they were head of they were head of Murder Inc. and uh, mm-hmm. they uh, Murder Inc. was very successful. They 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 were the rule. They 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 never killed innocent people. It was just all mob related. Right. Anybody that was doing stupid business in the mob, you know. And they, so if you died, uh, you deserved it. You deserved to die. You know, <laughs> you were doing things that you supposed you weren't supposed to do, and. You know, and in those days, if you became, if you were coming in and becoming a made individual or something, and you, you swore allegiance to something, you know what I mean? If right. you, if you broke the rules, then you deserved the penalties for it. Right. And people said, well, he wouldn't give a lot of people a second chance. And Albert said, well, why should I, if I give you a second chance, you're going to take my kindness as a weakness and you'll try to put me away in 10 years. You'll be right. rat on us. Right. You know? He was right. He was right about that. So he, you know, they, they, uh, they killed a lot of people. So how old were <laughs> you, you when, when, when he, how old were you when he died? 14. 14. Okay. Yeah. He, uh, actually, Albert was, uh, Albert was a very clever guy. He, his partner was, was, was being searched for night and day and they, uh, they hit him out for two years, and um, and they finally got to a point. They said, "You got to turn yourself in. There's nothing else you can do." So they made a deal with Hoover, FBI, oh, and yeah. he, he walked from his car, Malbert's car, to Hoover's car, and that gave the FBI their credence. It was the first national criminal that they ever caught. But they didn't catch him. He walked right in the guy's car, mm. and they gave him funding and became. All of a sudden, the FBI has had a lot of merit and credit to it, but Hoover was Hoover was was involved with the boys in New York for a long time. I mean, until my father's death. But he, I mean, there's a guy who ran the FBI, and he, he lived like a millionaire. You know. So, where can people get the book? Can, if somebody wants to get this book, totally on Amazon. There's there's a site called FamilyLegacyTheNovel.com. Okay, and they can and order it from there. Uh, that's you can order it right from there. It's a great read. It's actually a terrific read. Um, uh, and, third, and there's three more books we're going to come out with, and we're going to do a series. Tell it, it'll, 
kill out a television series because we're going to tell the truth about a lot of things. And like I tell in this book, when you read this book, I tell the truth about the Kennedy assassination. Oh, yeah, you're going to make some people mad doing that now, Jack. Well, about time that they were talking. I mean, you know, no one ever tells the truth about that. You know, they just, uh, if you were, if you were going to look at one person responsible for Jack Kennedy's death, mm-hmm. yeah? Yeah. You were going to narrow it down and say, who's the one person who was really responsible? It was his father. Right. right. His father made so many enemies. And, and, and you're from the South, so you'll understand this. The oil people in Dallas, H.L. Hunt, Sid Richardson, right. all of them, these guys made a lot of money on what they call surplus oil. They were paid me tax on it. And yeah. Joe Kennedy told us, he said, you know, when he first got, became president, he said, you got to put a levy of tax on those good old boys down there in, in, in the South, down there for the surplus oil. They're getting away with murder. That cost those guys like $200 million a year. Think that made somebody angry? <laughs> yeah, I think just a, a little, little bit. bit. <laughs> yeah. and, and there was another guy who was the captain of the police force in Dallas, and his mm-hmm. brother was like a Jew, and Joe Kennedy interfered with something with his brother where he got mustered out of the, out of the lost his rank and his pension and everything else. And uh, that made this guy a little bit angry. And then you had H.L. Hunt and, and all these other people that weren't too happy because they, when, when, when Kennedy was running for president, they took a ton of money and they gave it to Joe Kennedy for them to bring Johnson on as vice president. Mm. And, and then he turns around and he, he puts his tax on them and he does this and that and you know, and, uh, not a clever idea. You know, he made a lot of people very angry. So people think that the mob was involved in Jack Kennedy's death. That's not true. Right. The right. people who were the maddest at the Joe Kennedy were the people, bankers of Europe. In 1929, when the crash happened, yeah? Mm-hmm. 1926, some people went to Joe Kennedy, and and they, they he was a very bright guy, a brilliant banker, smart guy, and in the Prohibition era, he was bootlegging okay. with a guy from New Jersey. They they had a they had a, a a warehouse up in Canada, and his father-in-law, Honey Fitzgerald, controlled all the liquor from Ireland and everything, and brought it into America. And they were taking it up into Canada. They were making moonshine. They were bringing it down through Canada. And he made a mistake one day because there was a load of booze that was coming down that belonged to a crew called the Purple Gang. And he hijacked it. Mm. And the guys from the Purple Gang were, were some bad people. They were a Jewish group that uh, you just didn't play with. And they said, you're a dead man. You were a dead man. And he ran back to his father-in-law. And his father-in-law said, I cannot help you with those guys. The only person who can help you is in Chicago. The very first Don in Chicago, Joe Esposito, you got to go talk to him. And he went to Chicago, and Joe said, you know what? You're a great earner, kid. You go home to Boston. I'll take care of the Purple Gang, but you belong to me now. Oh, really? You belong to us. Oh. And there was a club out in, in, in Illinois called the Hamilton Club, which is like the New York Athletic Club. All the politicians hung out there and everything. 1926. 
and they sent Joe Kennedy to to California, introduced him to Randolph Hearst. He was responsible for RKO Studios. No one ever talks about that, right? Because he put together all the theater owners and formed the distribution for them. And he was a smart guy. So in '26, they said they they caved in because. After World War One, America became a war-bearing country. Mm-hmm. We started manufacturing war goods, and we were taking jobs away from Europe that they didn't like, and they didn't think we were paying back enough for the investment they put in the country because when America was established, the revenue came from Geneva. The bankers of Geneva through London invested into America very heavily. First bank that was ever put together it was only a million dollars came from America, 10 came from Europe. So they felt they weren't getting paid back fast enough, and they created what you call short sell. They had Joe Kennedy do that. He won, and what they did was, he, the first thing he did was they stole $5 million in Pathé Newsreel stock, common shares. No one caught him doing it. Mm-hmm. He had a very cleverly boy, that's pretty good. Now, this is what we really want you to do. And he designed a short sell that was aimed at 30 companies in Europe. And one of them was a company that Black Jack Bouvier, who was Jackie Kennedy's father, and his uncle and his, and his, and his brother were involved in, and that was a Rothschild company. Right, yeah. And they all got bankrupt. They were bankrupt because of the short sell business. And what right. they short sell... The first week, the short sell, you know what a short sell is, yes, right? Yes. They, they did a short sell first week. Kennedy made a fortune. That's where he got all his money for the for land he owns in Florida and everything. And all, right? all, anyway, wow. they did the short sell, and then they took a couple of days off, and they were coming back to finish it, and the country panicked, and the crash happened. Uh-huh. They didn't, they didn't do, to create the crash. It just was a remnant of it. Right. So when the crash was over, 1930, Roosevelt said to Kennedy, did a great job there, kid. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to rewrite the laws of the SEC because they knew Europe had to come back into the country to reinvest to get their money back. And they changed the SEC laws on their investments. Boom. And, uh, and he did a great job. And at 1935, when he got done, they sent him to England to be ambassador to England. Okay. And he was ambassador to England. <laughs> Some people in Chicago said to him, well, here's the gun. You're going over there to be ambassador to England. There's some friends of ours we want you to get together with because we want to tie some things together over there. So the first guy he sat down with was a Shah of Iran. It was a gangster. <laughs> they put a bank together and they lent money to Hitler. <laughs> and then the Hitler got from them, he came back and he bought guns from a guy called Khashoggi. And England turned around and said to Joe Kennedy, you can't do that. That's You can't do things like that. You're, you're, you're underwriting our enemy. And Joe said, well, you, America wasn't in the war. He didn't think he was doing anything wrong. The United States wasn't in the war yet. Right. So they threw him out of England. But no one ever told the real reason why they kicked him out of England. So he came home as ambassador Joe Kennedy and the, and the Gore family owned the newspapers on the East coast and the Hearst family owned the, on the West coast. And no one ever printed any stories about him doing anything wrong. And all the radio stations were owned by 
the Murchison family in Texas. So, you know, nothing was ever said. He just came home as Ambassador Joe Kennedy. <laughs> well, you know Jack, I, mean? I tell you what, man, we've uh, we are we're out of time for this 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 section of the podcast. Would you th- consider coming back when you write your next book? And or, sure. or especially sure. after you get the, uh, or I'd really like to talk to you again after you, once y'all start your, um, the filming for, for Ballad of a Simple Man. Uh, I think yeah, it'd be yeah. great to have you come back and talk about that. We can uh, promote that and, and all that kind of thing. I want to thank well, you. Well, you guys invite me down to Tennessee for some of them famous pork chops. Hey, yeah, listen, yeah. We'll, be, we'll be happy to do that, man. Yeah. Listen, you come to East Tennessee. I love pork chops in Tennessee. Man, we'll, we'll feed you well. <laughs> when you, you come to East here. Tennessee, we will feed you good. But uh, I just want to. I've been better about a few meals. You're right. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, taking the time to, to, to be with us today. And every, you all can find his book, um, excuse me, uh, Family Tradition on Amazon. That's family tradition. Family legacy. I'm sorry, family, family legacy. legacy. Family legacy yeah. on Amazon by Jack o- O'Halloran. So that's going to yep. do it for this time on Think Like a Man podcast. We will see you the next time we turn the mics on. You've been listening to Think Like a Man. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. It was kind of a crazy fun experience listen my whole family loves it man i love the show guys you're awesome and we'll see you next time